0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Valentine's Day 2022, which is also the post-Super Bowl hangover. Hopefully you have the day off today from work. If you don't... Well, you have this episode to listen to while nursing your coffee, tea, or Pedialyte. This past Saturday, Major League Baseball owners made their counterproposal to the Players Association. Two days prior, Commissioner Rob Manfred stated that this offer was the best that the owners have made during the negotiations post-lockout. It was a quote-unquote good offer. Our previous podcast episode previewing these talks lasted longer than, than the actual bargaining meeting between the owners and players on Saturday. The offer is not moving the needle nor closing the gaps enough for the Players Association to come to a new agreement on a CBA and end the lockout. For the week that pitchers and catchers were supposed to report, well, they'll need to continue getting ready for the 2022 season on their own. We'll break down what the owners counter Proposal was, and plus, even though the 40 man roster will not be in Glendale for spring training, the minor leaguers will be. And on that topic, Jim will be sharing his thoughts about the top 10 White Sox prospects entering 2022. Speaking of Jim, he joins me now on the Sox Machine podcast. Hello, Jim. You are optimistic Thursday night. Last we recorded that opening day is still on track. How are you feeling after learning about the owner's counterproposal this past Saturday?
2: Well, first, let's talk about that Super Bowl. What a game, huh? What a game. A, a real back and forth uh, affair, unless it was a blowout. Uh, I'm really happy for the Bengals and or Rams fans. Uh, you can edit this right to
1: uh, <laughs> uh, based on the outcome. Yeah, we're recording this before the Super Bowl. So we didn't see what happened during the game. We didn't know if the <laughs> halftime show was any good. I have high hopes for the halftime show. I think it'll be. Uh, very cool, very unique, uh, and maybe it sucked. Uh, maybe Eminem got got arrested. Uh, the Super Bowl didn't end. It's still going on. We don't know. Uh, but, yeah, what a Super Bowl, Jim. What a win for the Rams. Cut. What a win for the Bengals.
2: Cut. All right, there we go. Uh uh yes, A- as to your question at hand, I'm still like uh, my premise on being optimistic was not necessarily the quality of the offer, but what happened afterwards. <laughs> right now, you know, uh, based on the the quality of the offer and and the the union's uh, reaction is proportional. I think saying that they're not impressed, but basically, it seems like the league is taking the tack of like December or. Even like September negotiations in February, like they're they're using like the oh, incremental gains. Uh, let's barely improve, the, nudge the status quo, and maybe with the intent of meeting towards the middle, or maybe not. You don't quite know, but it's it's you know something that would be fine, and you know either before the CEBA expired or right after, had the uh, had the league come to the table immediately after implementing the lockout, it'd be a lot. More understandable and fine and, and you work towards it gradually but right now with spring training theoretically right around the corner not so much so I think it's more of a matter of uh you know does the union come back with a counter proposal immediately and does the league drag its feet again or call for a mediator or something like that I think that's really what this next step before I start to change my opinion too much on what Manfred said uh you know a few days before but it still doesn't make sense to me you know if the league is truly inflexible or barely flexible or any concession they're making is weighed down by something that's more punitive to ultimately cancel out concessions why would he say that missed games are disastrous for the sports that would just seem like a yeah you know, maybe Manfred is that graceless to where he just you know can't avoid shooting himself in the foot but Why would you deal yourself the PR blow if you are willing to miss games, but also say that miss games are the worst thing that can happen?
1: You make really, really good points, Jim. So let's break down on what the owners proposed to the players association, starting with the competitive balance tax. Now we talked a lot about the CBT in our previous episode, because I thought this was going to be the biggest sticking point between the two sides and what the owners proposed is that in 2022 and in 2023, the threshold would be $214 million. Now, if you didn't get an opportunity to listen to the previous episode, right now, before any additional free agents or trades are made, two teams are at or surpassing the threshold, the New York Mets and the New York Yankees, with the Los Angeles Dodgers not that far behind. And then in 2024 it goes from 214 million to 216 million <laughs> and then in the next year in 2025 it goes up to 218 million and in 2026 it goes up another 4 million to 222 million the penalties are remaining the same if you pass the first threshold it's a 50% tax on surpassing tier 1 which is a 30% increase from the previous CBA and you lose a third round draft pick you pass the second threshold, it's a 75% tax, which is a 43% increase from the previous CBA and loss of a second round pick. And if you pass the third tier, it's a 100% tax on every dollar surpassing $214 million, which is a 47.5% increase from the previous CBA, and it's a loss of a first round pick. Jim, we have often over the years podcasting together called the competitive balance tax a salary cap. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about from the, just the league's perspective, putting this in a official proposal to the players association. This gives me the perspective that the majority of the owners, and I say majority, it's not unanimous. I can't imagine that all 30 owners would sign up for this type of competitive balance tax model. But the Mm -hmm. majority owners really want to limit and curb spending. And this CBT, I think, is really going after the New York teams, the Los Angeles teams. I know the Philadelphia Phillies at times can get up there, especially now with Dave Dombrowski making uh, the calls. The San Diego Padres are creeping up there. Boston's been up there. And we are talking about the Chicago White Sox right now, around $170 million player payroll. Uh, before any additional moves are made post lockout, I, I just find this fascinating that the league itself seems to be okay to try to curb the amount of spending that these specific big market teams have been doing.
2: Yeah, the coastal elites, <laughs> you call them, uh, basically like ignoring fly the concerns of flyover country, and and now uh, and now it's the yeah I guess majority markets' uh, chance to you know retribution. Yeah, it's that's one of the, I think the biggest self-defeating talking points of baseball, baseball owners, baseball media is just, you know, the pursuit of equity, equality, equality among markets and saying like, well, you don't have a chance if you uh, spend less than a hundred million or 150 million, or if you're not top 10 Uh, Tampa Bay Rays are an exception, but that's it. And then when you look at, you know, how many teams have won the world series, the variety of teams in the world series I know it's, you know, when it comes to winning divisions, getting to the uh, league championship series, it, it's more weighted towards higher payrolls, but it's, you know, when you look at, you know, compare what the, uh, what teams are getting to the championship of their sport in baseball versus basketball or the NFL, it's just, it's basically as level of playing field as it gets for advancing. I think that's part of the nature of baseball is just being really hard to have a commanding advantage in a seven game series. Uh, You know, you can't put the ball in, you know, Mike Trout's hands every single possession. You can't, you know, every every single inning you have to uh, take your turns. It's a turn-based game and a lot can happen in those turns. So I think the dollar only goes so far or goes less far than it does in other sports to where like you can spend 210 million, you can spend 230 million, like you can get up there but there are diminishing returns, and we've seen that happen. The Yankees just, yeah, they spent themselves into a corner, and they blocked some prospects, or they had, like, multiples. They were solving money with money, and it got a little hairy. And we've seen that with other markets, too. Like, the Angels did it. The uh, the Mets have done it. Like, you can spend yourselves in the corners at times. Tigers and another team. To where, you know, it is a concern, I think, for Steve Cohen maybe to, you know, throw $300 million at a team. Like, that's a case where, yeah, the... You don't want the top dollar spending out of control. You don't. I think everybody is comfortable with a mm-hmm. gradual record contract to where like one player makes thirty three million a year, one player makes thirty five million a year, one player makes thirty eight million a year, but it's only a three year contract. Like I, I can see like the value of preserving that nice gradual rise of salaries, and I think players too are okay with that. They like having new highs, and I think they're willing to not wreck the model to where like all of a sudden teams get scared gun shy and only one player gets paid in the winter. But, you know, I, I think when it comes to just the, in an attempt to curb a Steve Cohen, a Dodgers ownership, you know, probably some teams are gunning for more and seeing just how much they can get and how much players are willing to bend and also just how much they can shape the uh, public uh, debates over just how, you know, much a team has to spend in order to compete. You know, how many teams have a shot? And I think that's one area. I think the, the needle has moved, or at least the debate has moved in the players' favor a lot from 1994 to 2022. But when it comes to just the idea of, like, how many teams have a shot on opening day... That's something I think where the league still has a little bit of the edge, especially because, you know, as much as the the Rays are an exception in one direction, I think the Pirates are an exception in the other direction. Like they're not trying. They're not spending. They don't care. And I think when you look at like teams like the Brewers who, you know, basically like they just needed mild retrenching. The Royals needed a mild retrenching. Like you can you can rebuild or regroup without like completely tanking for five years, competing for two and then tearing it down again. And I think that's something where the players maybe just need to do a bit more or just not exactly sure, but I think like that's a case where the pirates have too much sway over the public debate.
1: Yeah, you you make really good points again, and hearken back to a conversation you and I have had about postseason expansion. So the league wants to expand to seven 7- playoff teams for each league and you will run into the case that okay you're gonna have more teams that make it to the postseason that's obviously more dollars for the ball clubs that make the postseason both in television revenues and gate revenues if it's only going to cost 110 million dollars just to make the postseason it could influence the thinking of some teams that why spend 150 million when I can just have a player payroll at 110 million mm-hmm. and we could sneak in each and every single year as a sixth and se- seventh seed and hope that chaos ensues. And, you know, we could win a playoff series or two mm-hmm. and make things interesting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see it, you know, being the other way too, where teams that are spending 20 million, 30 million right now in committed salaries. You know, might say like, oh, I can spend 80 million and try this year when, you know, a year before I want to, a uh, year before we think we're ready for it and, you know, no big deal. So, yeah, I can see it balancing out. It's just um, right now when it comes to just the general shape of, yeah, you know, I guess how many teams embrace tanking, how many teams spent only spent until they absolutely needed to and not a year before, you know, not even like a deadline before the White Sox were in those teams. Like they could have signed Lance Lynn to a three year, $30 million deal uh, before they had to trade for him. They just didn't want to improve the team whatsoever. Like when you see how many teams embrace tanking to such a degree that they're happy or fine, you know, maybe even happier winning 50 games a year than 70. It's hard to believe that they'll spend more than they have to, even if, uh, you know, it, it's the sixth and seventh seeds being available now and having a way to win a World Series with 84 wins. Uh, I, I think, if anything, it might just maybe hard-code the six or seven teams in there to where, like, the Red Sox never miss or the Yankees never miss. You know, Some teams will surprise, but the big market teams will you know, basically have a seat at the table every single October, which I think the league would be happy with. But right now, when it comes to this whole window of contention situation, hoarding draft picks, etc., I would anticipate that that would drag the money down, not up. And so that's why I think the the players want to maintain that as like something they don't want to give up without getting a, something in return. Because ultimately, I think they'd be fine with more teams in the postseason, but they know it means a lot for league's coffers yes and they know it doesn't necessarily guarantee that teams will spend a whole lot more
1: yeah that television deal has already been sold (laughs) (laughs) the league needs the postseason expansion they've already sold this tv package to espn a a thought that i have jim moving forward because the two sides have a chasm here in difference the Players Association wants the CBT threshold to be raised up to $240-plus million. Now, if the league refuses to do that, they are never going to budge off of this $214 million for 2022. I know the Players Association before has publicly stated they are not interested in a salary floor. But is that something that needs to come back to the table? Because if the league and the majority of the owners are trying to curb spending, could, do you even think the league would even entertain the idea of a salary floor? And let's say it's $70 million as a salary floor, which is pretty low. Mm -hmm. And the way it would work would be very similar to the NBA that at the, after the season, if you do not have a $70 million player payroll, you your tax is essentially paying the 40-man roster the pool of money that's left over so if you have 50 million dollar player payroll after game 162 of the regular season and you're knocked out the remaining 20 million dollars that you owe to meet the salary floor goes to the players on the roster in the nba the oklahoma city thunder after the nba trade deadline are in this situation they are below the floor so the amount of dollars they are below the are Below the floor, they're going to have to pay the players that are on the existing roster. That's an idea that I've had over the weekend because, again, I'm just not that hopeful the players' association is going to get the league to budge on this particular point of the CBT. And if they're not going to, I guess you have to go aim for the bottom tier gym of spending teams and pretty much demand that they have to spend more. And the only way you're going to do that is if you create a salary floor.
2: Yeah, can you have a salary floor without a salary cap, though?
1: The CBT is a salary cap. That yeah, would be the I mean, argument that I would yeah. make from the players' association. But you you raise a good point. Can you have a salary floor without a salary cap? I don't know. Yeah, probably not.
2: I, I think you know uh, Joe Sheehan he had a tweet just saying like that. Basically, with the you know this could have been a lot more of a contentious fight with the players trying to get a year removed from the team control period, or you know, I guess bigger arbitration pay, you know, raises or something like that. But really he said like, you know, with the giving that up and just, you know, trying to go for higher minimum wage, higher CBT, they're really only talking about like two or 3% of annual revenue they're fighting over. It's not like a fundamental change of the game. So it strikes me as the same thing, like, you know, with the with the salary floor, it's just like maybe that raises from two to 3% to three to 4%. And for whatever reason, this seems like if, if owners really are willing to miss games over... The small amounts, I just wonder, you know, what's going to change that? Is it just like an attempt to like, you know, like like at some point it becomes, you know, less a matter of like CBT exact amounts and, you know, drafts and and free agent compensation more like, what are you, what are we doing here? (laughs) You know, if if the, if the conversation moves $5 million, every single proposal between the uh, arbitration award pool or like the pre-arb award pool from, you know, 150. Fifteen or 110 million to five million to 100 million to 10 million. Like, it seems like such a stupid thing to lose uh, games over and lose and you know actively sabotage interest over. And I'm not like a doomsday guy that says like you know the league's gonna lose so many fans they're not gonna come back. Uh, But Mm -hmm. you know, given TV ratings, given some attendance issues in some markets, given uh, just the somehow a fair number of teams have like actively persuaded their fans to look elsewhere during the summer for entertainment because they're just not trying. It does seem like it's going to have an uneven effect on baseball. Like, you know, baseball come back in LA baseball come back immediately in Philadelphia and Boston and all the places that are trying Chicago. But like for the smaller markets, like, what are their TV ratings going to look like? What are the belly sports ratings are going to look like for the teams that are failing? So that's, that's why, like, you know, the more we talk about this, uh, the less I'm, I want to talk about it just because like, I don't know, we can make a proposals, but if we're, if we're arguing over, like, you know, if the, if it takes so long for the players and, 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 and owners and, and probably more specifically the owners in this case to come to, $230 million for a CBT or $50 million for a, uh, you know, arbitration award pool. Do they just, you know, I guess are just willing to hammer the union for, and maybe they are because <laughs> that's just how, you know, it might work and, and, you know, billionaires are not used to not getting their way, but it's just, uh, you know, there comes a point where it gets gross. And like I said, like, you know, I'm, um, I don't get why Rob Manfred would say like, it's disastrous to miss games, but like, uh if if the offers are this far apart and nobody's budging and it's over this small amount of revenue and like it affects so few teams in the way they do business like why would you say it's disastrous to lose games when you know
1: it would be disastrous to lose games when you're fighting over that such small of a thing great points again jim and Goes into the salary minimums, which is the next thing that we've talked about in great length. As the Players Association wants a $750,000 player minimum, the league offered two options. Option one, a $630,000 minimum, whether that's years one through three, that would be the league minimum. Teams can pay more than that if they want, but that's the league minimum, $630,000 or a tiered system of zero to one years of service time, the min- the minimum would be 615000 One to two years of service time, the minimum would be 650000 And then the two to three years of service time would be $725,000. So they inch closer to the $750,000 minimum, but only for the players that are reaching their third year service time. And then the following year, They are going into arbitration. We talked about relief pitchers could get really screwed over with this type of model, Jim. A relief pitcher entering their third year, if they are decent, let's say not all-star worthy, and they go into arbitration and that arbitration model says they're going to get paid $1.5 million, they're probably going to get cut because then teams are just going to submit multiple minimum contract offers of $725,000 to get this reliever Mm -hmm. at half the cost. And it's going to seem some type of collusion. Uh, So again, another example of, it doesn't seem like much money. Like if you think about, you know, most teams have anywhere from what six to 10 players that are on a minimum deal, you know, we're talking six hundred and fifty to maybe a million dollar difference for each ball club with the league minimum, a $12 billion professional sports league can't agree on adding $1 million to every single player payroll. Like, come on, you get that over the weekend and just ticket sales, like, and that would pay for the entire season. Mm -hmm. You make a great point as far as, just how mind-numbing it is at times with these conversations that we are supposed to be talking about pitchers and catchers reporting. We should be talking about, do the, is the White Sox roster final? Maybe we're excited because they signed Michael Conforto or because now there's universal DH. There could be a trade that the White Sox may unload someone like Yuri Mercedes or Jake Berger to a National League team that needs a DH. Instead, we're talking about a, collective, a collection of owners do not want to spend any more money than they have to (laughs) and just butting heads against the players association.
2: I know there's a lot of, when it comes to the, uh, online discourse and fans who are just trying you know wanting baseball wanting baseball needs to talk about saying it's both sides why can't they both come to agreement lock them in a room etc but when you have like rob manford talking about like how unprofitable it is to own teams and how like they do better on the stock market and when the, you know he's misrepresenting the cbt talks to where like you know the league spokesman immediately has to issue corrections like just uh one side is you know arguing an okay faith <laughs> at least right now like Based on, you know, when it comes to this, you know, like I would say like the arbitration pool, given that it's such a new structure, I don't know if hundred million is too much to ask for, you know, based on, on, on how it'll work out in real time. Like it's a case where yeah, maybe it should only be 40, you know, while they figure it out. Maybe it's a case where like, you know, they're asking for too much, but you know, everything else, you know, the, the documentable things like, you know, how much, uh, the appreciation of franchise values and. Uh, the structure of CBT penalties, like just that's just the it, it really does seem like it's a league thing, just where it's, you know, just really pounding down on uh, on players and, and, and costs and everything like that. And it just it's uh, it, it's so small potatoes, like just the it, it doesn't that, that's the thing I keep coming back to is like it doesn't change the way any team fundamentally operates like everybody seems cool with the draft lottery of some kind so it's not like Mm -hmm. you know the orioles of the world are like getting angry that they can't draft and that you know not guaranteed a number one pick for another year like that seems more or less agreeable yeah the the whole draft pick compensation nobody seems bothered by that because it seemed like that was that worked out unevenly anyway so like the biggest things in terms of like applicable uh, changes with regards to player movements and like yeah, I guess, rewards for losing or, or or bad records, like not changing that much. So aside from like, you know, giving Steve Cohen and whoever like $30 million less to spend, there really just isn't anything that's really going to change the way teams are currently operating from next. You know, like I was afraid uh, when we were talking about like the White Sox window that this would change like, drastically it would shave years of eligibility off a of, you know team control lucas Gigalito would hit free agency a year earlier and the white Sox, you know the currently constructed roster would be kind of dismantled by the shortening of team control period like no white socks are fine mm-hmm. like there's there's nothing harming the white Sox with the way the the way this is constructed and like any team that wants to follow in the white Sox footsteps really are not going to be compromised by
1: this so i really don't get like just the the focus of limiting costs this much And then from Bob Nyingale of USA Today, he tweeted out something that really caught my attention, that the league in their proposal is increasing $23 million in signing bonuses for the amateur and international draft slots. Now, Jim, we currently don't have an international draft, Mm -hmm. but it seems that the league is pretty set on having language regarding an international draft in the next CBA. So let's start there. We know that universal DH is coming when a CBA is agreed upon. We know that playoff expansion is coming. We don't know if it's going to be six teams for each league or seven teams, but expansion is coming. Is an international draft coming?
2: Yeah. That's a case where I don't know just because, you know, beyond just, you know, hemming and hawing and, and taking the middle ground of like, I don't know. It's more of a matter of like, uh, you know, since it involves coordination with other countries, are they ready to do that? Are um, you know when it comes to like international laws and and how mm-hmm. you know uh, will the Dominican Republic sign on and will Venezuela not or vice versa? Like that's a case where I don't know how quickly they can agree to it, but it does seem like based on just that there's already a hard slot system or at least a hard pool system ready. Uh, that gets more and more confined with every CBA to where, like, you know, it used to be the case where Yoan Mankata or Luis Robert could, you know, break the budget pools and teams would be okay with that for the right player. And now you can't even do that anymore to where, like, a Shohei Otani has to settle for, you know, what, $2 million signing bonus? Yeah. So <laughs> it's pretty much already there. You know, the hard, you know, controlled costs. The only thing that, you know, players had was autonomy. And uh, to, to choose a team that they'd like within reason. Like in Oscar Colossus, you know, mm-hmm. he still had to wait a year to, to sign because he wanted, you know, he had to wait for the pools to open up again. So he cannot resume professional baseball as quickly as he wanted to. And, and so, like, there's still very little choice involved for players under the system. So it seems like they got pretty much all the way to an international draft. When it comes to player payment and movement, so we're like, yeah, they may as well. It's just more of a matter of, I don't know what it takes to get every country on the same page.
1: If this is added to a CBA that's agreed upon between the league and the players association, uh, that will influence the 2022 Major League Baseball bonus pools. In 2021, the total Major League Baseball draft bonus pool league-wide was two hundred and sixty-five million. $769,400. A $23 million increase from the league to those signing bonus pools is an 8.65% increase from the league's perspective. So, those are just a few of the details, some economic details in the CBA. And I do not think we have anything confirmed on the next time that they will be meeting between the Players Association and the league. But again, this is the week that pitchers and catchers were supposed to report. We don't have that. Instead, we just have Instagram videos of Dylan Cease and other White Sox players uh, getting themselves into playing shape. So before we head into break, I put up the poll on Friday for Friday's show after Rob Manfred's press conference, when do you think MLB opening day would be? And the majority was after April 30th at 44.1%, 24.7% agreed with Jim that it would start on time and thirty-one percent agreed with me that it would start two weeks later on April 14th. The poll that I put up after Saturday, Jim, fifty-eight and a half percent think it's gonna be after April 30th now. Take it away from on time, which is now down to fifteen percent. That's the lowest since I've done these polls. And take it away from my stance on April 14th at 26.5%. According to Evan Drellage of The Athletic, the league has told the Players Association X date is the date we have to come to an agreement or we're going to start missing games in 2022 or the league is going to have to be in some type of delay, at least for opening day are you still holding on to the glass is half full Jim? Are you still holding out for hope that the season's going to start on time after Saturday?
2: Like I said um, before, like the, uh, the rhetoric is terrible. (laughs) I understand more than I did before that. um, You know, why fans are pessimistic and expecting like a a big delay, but I'll be, uh, I guess I'll continue to present the glass half full side and that like this is what posturing would look like even if both sides were intent on not missing games. So, I guess I'll just, you know, keep
1: refreshing that in people's heads even if I'm, you know, not entirely convinced of that myself. When we circle back to this conversation in a calendar year and there is a CBA and we're recapping the 2022 season, I just want to go on record now to say how stupid it is that we're not having this conversation on January 14th. Like that's the biggest problem right now is wasting 40 plus days when you could have had this conversation in mid-January. And then if you did in mid-January, probably by now we're talking about what is all included in the new CBA. And we're going through the hundreds and hundreds of pages and being nerds on what are all the rule changes that baseball fans should be made aware of on how the 2022 through the 2026 seasons are going to play out and how the drafts are going to be different and et cetera, et cetera. But no, no, it's, it's Valentine's day. There is no agreement. Pitchers and catchers are not reporting this week to spring training. Mm -hmm. I feel like spring training is most definitely going to be delayed now, as far as those, those uh, first spring training games in late February, And uh, we'll see about opening day, but things are going to have to radically change uh, if there is no delay to opening day. We are going to take a quick break, but coming up next, let's chat about Jim's top 10 White Sox prospect list next on the Sox Machine podcast.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome
1: back to the Sox Machine podcast. For those that were hiding under a rock and not visiting SoxMachine.com this past week, you have missed prospect week. For those that continue to visit socksmachine.com in the offseason every single day, you've got an opportunity to enjoy Jim's work all week long on socksmachine.com writing about the Chicago White Sox farm system. And over the weekend on Sunday for our Patreon supporters, exclusively Jim's top ten prospect list. Now, I'm not gonna read off the top ten prospect list because you should go to patreon.com slash socksmachine and sign up today, uh, you can sign up for as little as $2 a month, and you can save 9% off the annual, with an annual plan from the monthly plan. So you can see Jim's top 10 prospects and is right up on the top 10 prospects. So not being a spoiler, I'm going to ask Jim some questions regarding his top 10 list. So Jim, I want to start off with, like your premise was, these are the top 10 White Sox prospects that you may not want to see the White Sox trade them. Slash, they could be the most attractive to other teams. What was the most difficult part coming up with this list?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to prospect rankings and trying to come up with, like, the most honest form of prospect rankings, I'm not somebody who can break down a great swing from a good swing. I can tell like a good swing from a bad swing. I can tell like extreme hitches. I can tell weird deliveries. But when it comes to like the, you know, tinkering and and, and quiet changes, like I'm not going to be able to tell you that. So I'm not going to pretend to and I'm not just going to regurgitate what other people have said and say like, that was my opinion too. (laughs) So I try to think like, what can I bring to the table? And it's more a matter of like, well, I have an idea of like, which prospects tend to work for the White Sox, which ones don't, the direction they're trying to go towards. Does this is guy help them achieve that? So it's kind of like a half prospect ranking, half trade value ranking. And when it comes to the you know order, right now, this is like a, it's a deep system for how shallow it is. I think that's the weird thing. <laughs> like when it comes to, yeah, yeah they don't have much in the way of like bankable, contributions to the roster but some guys who could contribute if things break right or if you know they they, if one if they learn like the one weird trick clickbait thing to help them you know uh unlock you know breaking ball command or uh just a little bit more play discipline like they can get there so when it comes to like uh, the strange thing is we've had systems before, like I'm thinking especially 10 years ago when Addison Reed was the number one prospect, undoubtedly and like Nestor Molino was number two to where like there was just <clears> nothing <throat> there. And like, oh, you know, like just hope that there's a random success story here or there. Like this is a case where like it's hard to come up with number one prospect, but it's also hard to like separate the number six prospect from the n- number 12 prospect because they're all kind of interesting. And I think that's a change in the way the white Sox have drafted and signed players to where like at least they're more active in the international markets more active and, and aggressive and, and willing to sign prep players to where like more guys have time on their side even if they have disappointing debuts or a rocky adjustment to a ball like they their timetables are more forgiving and unfortunately for like you know stoking excitement about the farm system they've had to use a lot of that forgiveness but at least like they have you're not worried about like oh they're behind the curve now now they're just like age appropriate versus ahead of the curve and it makes it uh difficult to and and kind of fun to flip players around and and rank things and re-rank things and get an idea of just uh you know which players they feel more confident about and even though like when it comes to prospect rankings, like nobody really, it doesn't make a difference if like somebody ranks Nick Magical ahead of Andrew Vaughn, like Baseball prospectus did, because they both made the majors, they both contributed. Magical actually had a better year than Vaughn, um, even though that was the, they were the exception to everybody else putting Vaughn first. But when it comes to like the, like fourth through 10th, that's, I think, where you can kind of uh, put an interesting name out there, put a guy you like, put somebody you think has upside and enter that name in the conversation to where like maybe the consensus doesn't see them, but given how deep the White Sox are in maybes, like it's worth just, ta- I'll take a flyer on this guy and, and maybe put them higher than even I think they should be just because I don't necessarily have strong belief that somebody should be eighth. I mean, maybe they should be 13th or something like that.
1: So this upcoming week, and this question's going to help me because we are kicking off our major league baseball draft coverage with college baseball opening day, upcoming this, uh, this Friday and that's a very exciting time and every week for our Patreon supporters I will be doing the draft watch, I'll be recapping as far as some what I think are interesting college and prep prospects to track along and how their seasons are going all the way up to the Major League Baseball draft this upcoming summer. So when you look at the White Sox entire farm organization, Jim, what, do you, what position group do you think is their current strength? with the prospects they have in hand.
2: I would say outfield is looking more promising than it was just because of Oscar Colas. And it depends, you know, on how ready he looks and the white Sox were careful. I think Marco Patty was, was careful to not over promise, uh, but also not undersell Colas, not say like, well, he's going to need a year. He, he, he neither, you know, count on him for major league production in 2022, but also didn't count it out basically saying, well, he's adjusted to one professional league already. Uh, when, w- with the NPB and so like he could do it again like no reason he can't uh, even if you want to give him some leeway just to you know get adjusted after missing you know a couple of years of, of real baseball but between him and and Yolke Cespedes and then you know when it comes to like say you know Gavin Sheets playing the outfield even you know some of the time or Romy Gonzalez being able to play out there. Uh, with some regularity. Like, there are ways to cover that position. Micah Adolfo is another one. Like, if he's able to survive his option situation. Like, they have enough there, I think, for the immediate future to where, like, you don't have to... You know, it isn't the the, the four-alarm fire it has been <laughs> when looking for, like, uh you know immediate upgrades or immediate contributors needing, like, the Brian Goodwins to deliver for a month at a time to patch holes. Like, they should be better equipped this year, at least in the second half of 2022, to have somebody who might be worth an
1: audition. All right. So the flip side, what position group do you think, at least in this upcoming draft class and maybe future international signing periods as well, that the White Sox should take a look at and try to make more additions to, because it may be the weak chain link in their farm system.
2: Well, yeah, I think catcher is rough just because Carlos Perez is like the only... Position player right now who's on the, you know, right now they have a ton of catchers or, or theoretical catchers on the 40 man roster, but when it comes to like the next wave, who can hold down a job? Third catcher, second catcher, like Perez is the only one. Adam Hackenberg's kind of interesting, um, but, you know, he's only been at Canapolis so far, and, you know, college players have successful years in Canapolis and then struggle once they get to Winston-Salem or above. So I'm, I'm not going to make too big of a deal of him right now, but catcher is weak, but I think when it comes to like a I guess a bigger position group, like a a bigger player pool to even choose from. I am surprised by, like, how sketchy starting pitching looks. Like, Norhe Vera is cool. Like, I I, I like him a lot, uh, even though he hasn't pitched uh, outside the DSL. Like, the ingredients are there. Sean Burke, I think, was a nice pickup to replace, like, Connor Pilkington for your college draft pick who might be ready uh, sooner than you think. But the whole area of, like, Matthew Thompson – uh, Andrew Dahlquist, Jared Kelly, like not making any strides last year, I think hurts them quite a bit when it comes to pitcher depth. Jonathan Stever stalling out. Uh, Jimmy Lambert looking like a fringe, up and down guy, uh, spot starter, long relief type candidates, you know, needing to have a better change up to uh, show the ability to last longer in starts. Like that's, I think that that whole starter group, not having somebody who's really having any kind of upward mobility yet is where like, yeah, you, know, you can survive a down year or no movement for a year, but if Thompson, Dahlquist, Kelly, like they, they just haven't really even been able to leverage their draft day strengths. Like you know, when you when you hear about like Thompson, Dahlquist being great athletes, and then they're still having delivery problems, or Kelly being this big, strong Texas guy and having shoulder issues because of fatigue and conditioning, it's like, well, you know, how are they going to hold up at the finer points? Like once they you know actually have to. Mm-hmm be able to throw a breaking ball for strikes, but also chase pitches. Like they're not even there yet. So where that makes me a bit concerned about their long-term futures or even immediate term futures. So that's, I think if they went with a starting pitcher in the first round, not like a bullpen fast track guy, like Garrett crochet, but an actual starting pitcher, I would not mind that. Here's the bad news. Yes.
1: The starting pitching class, at least in the first round is almost non-existent. (laughs) Especially on the college front uh, with this upcoming draft class.
2: But when it comes to like, is it the case where like just nobody has proven themselves yet, but they could over the season? Or would anybody who makes themselves interesting over the course of a college season just be a helium case versus an actual like real,
1: real deal, like first rounder delivering? The answer to that question is yes. The, some of the Friday night starters we're going to see from the elite programs across the country You're going to hear a lot about, yeah, they're throwing five, six innings in college, but that guy's a reliever Mm -hmm. in the majors. Like that is not a sustainable throwing motion. Think of like Carson Fulmer uh, for Vanderbilt being their Friday night starter. But in the end, he's more of a reliever uh, with this far as the overall stuff. The starting pitchers that I did like in this draft class, all, all of them have gotten Tommy John surgery. Before the season started, you do have Kumar Rocker that is available, but there is a great mystery regarding as far as the health of his elbow. Mm-hmm. And then you have prep starting pitchers, but then again, we just talked about how Jared Kelly, Matthew Thompson, Andrew Dahlquist struggled their first year. Will the White Sox continue to go down that route of drafting more prep starting pitching prospects? Possibly. Uh, but they're not having great success immediately after spending quite a bit of draft money on Kelly, Thompson, and Dahlquist.
2: Yeah, Tanner McDougal would have been cool too, but he got he got hurt at the end of the year. He has time yet John yes. surgery. So that's that's a bummer too, is like he wasn't able to add to that critical mass yet.
1: Right. So it's just it's not a very strong, at least at the top of the draft, I'm talking about the first and second round. It's not a strong pitching class. It is a strong position player group. I think there are three first-round catchers available already preseason-wise, and there may be a couple other college catchers as well. So you could have up to five college catchers that might be first-round quality grade. Uh, So that's where, as far as position groups, I agree with you. I think catchers very weak for the Chicago White Sox behind Yasmani Grandal. That Zach Collins, again, it's not panning out for Collins and the White Sox at the moment. Maybe something clicks for him in 2022, and he surprises everybody. But maybe the White Sox, again, have to go back into that well and find their future starting catcher, or they're going to have to think about signing or making a trade for somebody else's uh, catcher to to help out with that depth in the farm system. But, yeah, on the starting pitching front, you're going to hear a lot about this now in February and all the way through June Where is the starting pitching in this draft class? There are some outstanding arms that could be electric relievers professionally. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, But if any team's going to try to make them into a starter, they're going to have to be patient. But how patient are you going to be with a 22, 23-year-old college kid? Uh, When if you are a contending team like the White Sox, you may want to try to pull another Garrett Crochet and throw him into the fire right away. Because you're confident in what you have in the starting pitching front, but you need immediate help in the bullpen.
2: Yeah, then I, I hope the White Sox don't go that route. And I know they were going with another—Baseball uh, America had them uh, mocked to a another Tennessee starter-slash-reliever.
1: Oh, no. Blake Tidwell? Yeah. And,
2: no. and that's a case where just—I uh, think Crochet is fine, but given that his velocity slid backward— uh, in his second year, like immediately had uh, issues, um, you know, maintaining that elite velocity that they were drafting him for. And now he's just like a good lefty, but still trying to, you know, make himself like a, an even an Aaron bummer grade weapon to where like, you know, I believe a little bit in letting a professional pitcher, letting a professional, anybody, any position, like develop a routine before having to be, having to hold up against the game's toughest competition. Like, I'm thinking, like, Carlos Rodon. I think that was the biggest lesson from the Carlos Rodon experience was that, you know, Rodon was pretty much as good as it got for a college starter. You know, within reason. Like, maybe there might be, like, a perfect starter. But, like, Rodon was pretty much as devastating as you're going to get for a college product. And even then, like, he just had to learn how to prepare every five days. Like, how to recover every five days. How to... Uh, last longer in games and that's something that he wasn't afforded and then you, when you saw lesser pitchers like Carson Fulmer you get yanked up and down and, and kind of crumble and uh, you're seeing with Crochet right now that he's just like not quite the same guy in his second year like I really don't like the idea of just doing that over and over again. I think it made some sense in the 2020 season just because it was so weird. And, and yeah. in a case, like you don't know a lot of what you're getting. So take the sure thing. If you think he is a sure thing. And right now, Crochet at least has been sure production in that limited role. Um, but as you you know, break out of that, as you get further removed from that shortened season and all the workloads that were um, compromised because of that, I would like to see the White Sox try to avoid looking at a college pitcher and saying he can help at the end of this year or he can help in April of the following year and just try to get on a solid five-day routine to get that best pitcher versus like a pitcher who is good enough.
1: The reason I'm saying no to Blake Tidwell, he has a shoulder injury. Yep. And he's going to be missing significant time. If I was in that draft room, there is no way I would consider Blake Tidwell in the first round. Absolutely no way. Even if he submitted to the pre-draft physical, Mm -hmm. there's just no way you're spending millions of dollars on a pitcher that has suffered a shoulder injury and is going to be missing significant time is what the university of Tennessee is saying for the 2022 season. It's just been, it's been a disaster, Jim. Mm -hmm. It's just been a disaster. The top college starting pitchers in this draft class have have serious arm injuries, whether they have opted to get Tommy John surgery and they're missing the entire season or in Tidwell's case. Now you have this mysterious shoulder injury uh, and he's going to miss significant time. So yeah, I, I I totally get what you're saying. That starting pitching could be a weakness for the Chicago White Sox in their farm system. I'm just saying from a draft perspective right now in February, unless someone really steps up as far as a sophomore, the draft eligible sophomore or junior class in college starting pitching and they are lights out uh, right now it's a pretty weak class as far as starting pitching goes for this upcoming major League baseball draft and there'll be more of that uh, analysis coming up on soxmachine.com later in the week. one question for you when it comes to the yeah. Tommy John surgeries is uh,
2: would you be opposed to the White Sox using a for, first
1: or second day pick on a Tommy John case? I don't think so because they've had some success of pitchers recovering from Tommy John surgery, obviously Michael Kopech, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the White Sox have a good rehab program that if they were to take one of these junior starting pitchers, knowing that all of 2022 is gone, but they continue with the rehab program. Maybe they're already halfway through the rehab program and there is a chance that they can join your camp in Glendale in the spring. And you can maybe have them starting games in June and July of 2023. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I would do it. If you think that the stuff can hold up and the stuff will bounce back and they have the ability to be a fast riser through your farm system
2: yeah, I think I, I like that idea just because it does have the built-in governor of you can't fast track him because they can't pitch. right. <laughs> so you have to take your time and and really consider the best way to uh, develop this pitcher and his pitches and his routine. Uh, to make him
1: hold up for the next six, seven years. And it brings back the Kumar Rocker conversation, right? And you're in Nashville. This is a very popular topic in Nashville, especially with mm-hmm. Vanderbilt. Even though Kumar Rocker is not pitching for Vanderbilt, uh, Coach Tim Corbin is going to be answering questions about Kumar Rocker, staying in touch with them and try to help Rocker as far as the draft process as Rocker is contemplating pitching an independent ball. But let's say the elbow isn't in it still is an issue for Rocker, and he decides I'm gonna to get Tommy John surgery. When the White Sox pick, and it's a 26th overall pick this year, and Rocker is still on the board, and if he's willing to take two and a half to three million dollars, he is someone that I would circle and say, yes, that would be a worthy investment for the White Sox. They have a need for starting pitching. We know how electric Kumar Rocker is can be as far as his experience as freshman and sophomore years at Vanderbilt, if you let him rehab for a full calendar year and get back to full strength because Vanderbilt really used him to win their national championship uh thanks to his strong ability on the mound, then you can kind of time it up where when we're asking questions of, well, if the White Sox can't afford Lucas Giolito internally, who do they got? well, you got Kumar rocker. Now Mm -hmm. Uh, you may have a little bit more confidence in rocker than maybe some of the prep arms that are currently in the farm system, but those options are not many either. So it's, it just doesn't line up, but position player wise, my Lord, this is a incredibly strong first round class, especially the position player front. And especially with catcher, my last question regarding your top 10, who outside of the top 10 do you think could possibly break into the rankings if you updated this list, let's say July 14th?
2: Well, I left the prep picks off there, the prep pitchers, Thompson, Dahlquist, Kelly, just because of how rough it was. And, and as I mentioned, just how they struggled to even capitalize on what was supposed to be their strength. So I'd like to see them at least, you know, repeat a delivery better, uh, you know, maintain velocity better, um, hold up over the course of, a month better in the case of Kelly. So that's a case where like, yeah, I'm not asking for much there. And so if they, you know, are able to hold up and, and this is their year where they make those gains, then they can slide in. Cath is another one where just like his strikeout rate was a little bit too high in the Arizona complex league, despite like his advantages of being an older high prep player, being an Arizona guy, like it shouldn't have been like a big culture change for him to where like, you know, striking out 42 times over 115 plate appearances is uh you know, he, he can get past that, but just more of a matter of like, I don't want to rank him eighth when that's there. <laughs> if I like somebody more, like somebody's demonstrated more. So I'll hold him back into the teens. Uh, the, the one guy I'll mention who I haven't really seen surface in any list yet is Wilfred Varis. Uh, uh, he was international signing, um, and he was, uh, yeah, he was six-figure signing, Um, made his debut in the in in the ACL versus uh, the DSL and he was 18 years old and he was basically like their best hitter you all season long hit for the cycle at one point I I'm looking at his line here like uh let me find it again because I lost it he hit 322 416 OBP 533 slugging which is like, you know, you see that line occasionally in the ACL or like, you know, especially among older players. Uh-huh. But for an 18-year-old making his debut, we are impressed with Jose Rodriguez when he had a nice year. Brian Ramos had a nice year. And Varys is like basically like outpacing those players by a considerable amount. So it's it's worth putting a pin in. And right now, like the, the concern is that Varus like he, he had a rough year when it comes to the error count at third base. Might struggle to stay off first base, uh, doesn't really have a position yet, but the hitting is like, huh, that's a lot. <laughs> so mm. uh, it's a case where, like, yeah. if he does, you know, even you know carries most of that to A ball in Canapolis, I think that's a case where, like, people are going to be paying attention. So I'm just putting a pin in that now. And if he can, like, you know, hit, you know, like an 800 OPS in Canapolis as a 19 year old, then we're talking about him a lot more the way we're talking about, like, Jose Rodriguez. Uh, being so impressive with his three-level uh, climb, like his, his his meteoric rise. And same thing, like, if he's somewhere between Ramos being good enough in Canapolis and Rodriguez being great at three levels, I think Veras can fit right in based on the way he started.
1: All right, I like that. That is someone to, to follow along. And you'll have the minor league previews in, in a month or so as the White Sox when they make those rosters official. And uh, minor league baseball, their opening day is still on track. There will be no delay there. They will start in early April. I've got a feeling Kannapolis might be the must-watch team again. For the White Sox farm system with all of the intriguing young prospects that they have, them or Winston Salem, if Winston Salem is getting Oscar Colas, because obviously everybody wants to see what Colos could do immediately. But if everybody, if the prep arms repeat Canapolis again and they include Norhe Vera, uh, it might be mm-hmm. worthwhile to have the tablet on the Canapolis Cannonballers to start the season. Colson Montgomery. Oh, yes. Yeah. Good point. Good point. So, yeah, Canapolis yeah. might be the, uh, the must watch of the farm systems right now. It's a lot more fun when Birmingham is because these prospects are getting closer to the major leagues. Uh, But we're at the state right now where Canapolis and Winston-Salem are going to have to keep our attention with the upcoming season. That will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. And again, if you didn't get a chance to read Jim's excellent work for prospect week, You can get all of those articles on SoxMachine.com. And if you sign up or if you're already a Patreon supporter, check out Jim's top 10 White Sox prospect list. And if you are new to Sox Machine or you've been a lurker on SoxMachine.com for a while and don't support us on Patreon, do so at patreon.com slash Machine where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content like the top 10 prospect list from Jim and starting next week the MOB draft reports that I'll be doing weekly on Wednesday to recap what happened over the weekend and preview the upcoming weekends important college season uh, series that'll be happening they also get ad-free versions of the podcast and website. And when we have new socks machine swag or we have pre orders for new socks machine swag, they get the first opportunity to purchase those items. And you can, again you could do that at patreon.com slash socks machine. And our pre-order for the shirts and caps, Jim, have already been completed.
2: Yes. Uh they're in. They're in the process of being uh um, you manufactured and then sent to me. And then once I, I ordered a handful of each, uh, extra, so I'll be putting those on the site and I'll be posting first about them on Patreon and sharing the link. So yeah, uh, it, that's, uh, one of the benefits
1: of supporting us that will be emerging soon. Excellent. So again, that's patreon.com slash socks machine. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts like Apple Podcasts and Spotify or Google Podcasts. And the Sox Machine podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your own for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.